So welcome to this uh, Christmas special episode of Urban Design Room. Uh, today we're going to try something different. I'm joined by uh, someone who's previously been on the podcast, planner Lucy Woolwork. Hello, Lucy. <laughs> Hi, John. Good uh, to be back. <laughs> thank you for coming back. Um, Don't scare me off the first time. <laughs> and um, Danny Orwin, artist Danny Orwin, who has also previously been on the podcast, talking about film art and cities. Hello, thank Danny. You, John. Hello. Hi, Lucy. <laughs> And um, we're sitting here in the old Salford Town Hall in a very nice space, which we're not exactly sure what it was used for, but we've had a bit of discussion. I think that, what did you think it was, Danny? Um, I know I know. before it was, well, the estate agency now on the building, uh, it was their office. Uh, and before that, I think it was um, a space, well, there was desks here. It was part of the court, I think, because it was the town hall and the courts were here as well. Um, but I don't know. So if anyone does know what the the large space on the on the upper floor of the town hall was used for, let us let us know. Tweet um, in, answers, in, answer in a postcard. Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> so what we're going to do in this episode, we've each got um, we've each got three stories about cities or something to do with urban design or planning, and we just want to share them. We'll have a bit of discussion, um, and then we'll move on to the next one. It may be a slight ripoff of uh, No Shut Singers of Fish, but hopefully we'll give it a bit of an urban design slant to it. Um, so we're going to start off with, with Danny's, Danny's fact, Danny's story. So Danny, what have you brought today? So uh, yeah, my, my story that I came across was a, an article actually by Jonathan Schofield uh, about the 125 Deansgate building that's under construction at the minute on Deansgate, which is um, probably the major street through Manchester City Centre, which you know probably all agree with that. Um, and how it kind of doesn't or does well doesn't complement John Ryland's uh, library, uh, which is directly opposite. Um, and kind of comparing that to other spaces in Manchester, such as St Peter's Square and the renovation that's happened there. Um, I think for me the most interesting bit was that the way that the architects themselves describe the area of Deansgate was referred to as industrial, and that was by Glenn Howells um, architects. So they they were saying that their building, their plan complements the area, but referred to Deansgate as industrial, which Jonathan Schofield says has never been really an industrial part of Manchester and certainly not in the last 150 years. Um, So I don't know, I wanted just to kind of put those points forward for kind of discussion i know that earlier on we had uh amy caniff uh earlier mm. on in the series kind yeah, of yeah. talking about heritage and so i thought it was a good um thread there for us for us to discuss yeah yeah so do you like the buildings as well is it i well for me i think dean's gates you know we always talk about that kind of correct me if i'm wrong but is it a four-story rule or a six-story rule which is quite yeah, it's a sort of young gales yeah. So it's that human scale, it's that connection. If if you imagine that if you're on a balcony on the sixth floor, that's the the highest level roughly where you could still make a connection with someone on the street, you can still see their face, you can feature. So if you see a friend, you can recognise them and say hello. But as soon as you start getting above those stories, it just becomes a bit more inhuman. So, you know, I was thinking about the way that Deansgate is and roughly the buildings are all similar sort of uh, height all the way down towards yeah. once you get past uh, Deansgate train station up to, say, the end where Market Street and number one Deansgate is. Um, and the, by the plans, you know, looking at them, it's going to be really tall. It's going to overshadow the uh, John Ryland's opposite. Um, and then also even now just seeing it be built, it almost looks as if it's leaning over the John Ryland's building. Mm-hmm. And if you think well, what an architectural wonder it is for the city, uh, a massive tourist attraction, and really you should be paying 
a lot more tribute or, you know, making more allowances for, for one of your cultural heritage sites. Um, and I think other cities take a lot more care. I can't think right off the top of my head. I'm sure, I'm hoping <laughs> that you, you might be able yeah. to, to come up with some examples yourselves. But I just get the feeling that Manchester sometimes doesn't quite take that care with the cultural buildings and the, the heritage spots that we have. And um, my fear is that you have one instance like that on Deansgate and then does that open the the floodgates then for, for other buildings. Obviously famous for the St. Michael's, the Gary Neville towers oh, that, yeah. were, that were going to be built um, as oh, well. Still, oh, they plan, I believe they got planning permission, but really? only for one tower now. It's one been revised. Right, it's altered design. Um, yeah. So yeah. I think we, you know, we're on the precipice of this, you know, yeah. being, you know, the, the Manchester, the city centre itself being radically transformed and, and what effect that might have as you, as you walk through. Yeah. So is well, your... Sorry. sorry, I mean, that, well, that's why I, well, that's also why I think it's really interesting. <laughs> sorry. We're also eager to say something. Oh, you get to say something. Hi. Um, but also, I think it, like, yeah, it opens up such a, like, a number of points. That's why it's, as a one building, it's just one building among a number that's going up. But I think there's so many interesting things it brings up about what's happening in Manchester and this idea of, yeah, Manchester and heritage. And the idea of industrial heritage is really interesting, isn't it? I mean, when we kind of are, like, perceptions of heritage, it's more about not, you know, pre-industrial heritage. We think of these, like, heritage-filled towns in, the, you know, a place like Cambridge or what have you. But then industrial heritage, we somehow don't know how to deal with it, do we? And what... And, and I know exactly what you mean about, like, these buildings need to be set off a lot better, don't they? Because otherwise they just get hidden. I know from other cities, you know, there's places that you go to one year and these places are real landmarks. Mm -hmm. Then you go back a few years later and they're just so towered over by other things Mm -hmm. that then they're just kind of lost in in the landscape. But, you know, Manchester's, um, you know, an an interesting case, right? Because the identity of the city has always been this kind of like bombastic, forward-looking kind of place, right? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. A bit kind of, I always think of it as like quite a bullshit city. Do you know what I mean? It's, and it's all about kind of, um, you know, it was very working class heritage, but it's also about kind of commerce and kind of trade and all this kind of stuff. And we're not the kind of people, I don't know, I feel like Manchester, for better or for worse, doesn't kind of, it doesn't get too prissy about its heritage and its history, does it? It's kind of quite sort of forward looking. I think that sometimes brings about problems sometimes. Mm. Um, but in terms of its industrial heritage, I think there's not that much attention paid to it and then this you know this high-rise debate in Manchester is just going to get bigger and bigger isn't it because a lot of people um you know like these Ian Simpson towers that go up in um Manchester these kind of slightly phallic towers popping up everywhere you know they're just going to be they're going to dominate the landscape more and more and a lot of people when you speak to them they see this as 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 forward-looking and as Manchester kind of reviving and you know like any kind of declining city sort of coming back and that means building big kind of sort of bombastic high-rise buildings but then um you know what is Manchester going to look like when that keeps happening and um the talk that we went to um can't remember his name the Guardian's architectural critic was talking about um it's lost on you as well but but really interesting talking like um putting up some mock-up images of what Manchester will look like once all these towers are built right um and it's just extraordinary, um, the kind of change to the city. And they've all permissioned or planned. Mm-hmm. But we never see, you rarely see those images of what it's going to look like. And all of that heritage, which is much lower rise, mm-hmm. is all completely lost within yeah. the landscape, isn't it? I was, I was in Hume a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I was actually, I was really taken aback because you're in the sort of the, the modern terrace streets and, and flats of Hume of sort of the 1990s regeneration or 2000s mm. regeneration. And 
looking towards the end of my friend's street and you suddenly see the new towers popping up mm-hmm. and it was it was kind of awe-inspiring in a way it felt like i wasn't in manchester it felt like a different city um and it wasn't necessarily the i didn't view it as either good or bad necessarily but it, it was there was an element of awe about it actually and either, i mean maybe that is that yeah. what towers are trying to do yeah it doesn't say anything about what's happening at the street level or the buildings surrounding it but it was just this moment of being in a low-rise Manchester, and then suddenly it was like at the end of the street. It was like, yeah, mm-hmm. and because they're so large, it was hard to judge how far away they were or whatever. It was very and the whole the whole texture of the place changes, doesn't it? Because you think about like the texture of Manchester. It's quite it's like solid, handsome buildings, quite uh, dark, a lot of very red. <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of people who've never been before, um, they come and they're really. Um, the first impression is how kind of like dark and red mm-hmm. and solid everything is, mm-hmm. you know. So then what these like high rises are bringing is this sort of lightness and it's difficult to make that work. I'm, I'm not someone who will kind of run away at the thought of high rise, you know, which is certainly a big voice in the high rise debate. It's just anti, you're either anti high rise or you want high rise. Actually the same debates going on in Bristol where I'm based at the moment, similarly about their high rise policies. They're trying to build higher and higher, mm-hmm. um, but it does bring this lightness to the landscape. But if it's done badly, you've got these sort of stocky, like industrial 19th century buildings, and then just these like glass things sprouting out of them. And it needs a really careful hand, doesn't it? I think. I think the thing that I always um, <clears throat> think about or picture so if, if you were going to look for a postcard to send somebody of Manchester, mm. you would more likely pick the town hall, John Ryland's library, maybe even possibly Central Library. So, you know, you've got two Gothic buildings there and then one neoclassical I don't know I don't know if that's the yeah, right architectural yeah, yeah. term for centralized you know white and mm. um now would you ever really send a postcard of the new instance in towers you certainly I don't think well in my opinion you wouldn't send a postcard of 125 Deansgate which has been <laughs> built across from John Ryan's library uh, and sometimes you get those um kind of silhouette silhouette cityscapes that you can kind of see in with London I, I guess we could all pick out those landmarks really easily so it'd be London Eye be Big Ben um maybe now it would be the Shard I don't know yeah um but then you start getting into you know and maybe if, with Berlin you'd be able to pick out you know those kind of things um but so now you have these these buildings that are being overshadowed, but really the cultural heritage or the, the things that you might think of, the buildings, the landmarks that you might think of are being absolutely obscured or starting to be. Um, but I don't know, I, that postcard trick is always mm. the one that I kind of think of, like, okay, well, where's, where's the, where do I place the importance of this place? Yeah, yeah. And I think there's a need, yeah, there's a need for a strong vision of a place. And this is where, mm-hmm. like, you know, technically it's the, the planner's role, right, that they're supposed to have a vision of what somewhere's going to look like. And otherwise, and if you don't have that strong vision, you know, for instance, if they're trying to like promote tourism in Manchester, you know, Manchester's not a tourism hotspot, but you know, they're building these hotels, they're trying to get tourists in. And so you're like, well, what do you make this? What is your vision of this place that people are going to flock towards? Um, And I don't think when there's not a strong vision, I don't think Manchester Council is particularly good at this kind of thing. You just sort of sleepwalk into sort of being, oh yeah, high rise. Okay. Yeah. And then we'll do a bit of regen over here and we'll do but you sort of sleepwalk in something that becomes a bit of a patchwork that isn't somewhere that people are gonna hop on hs2 and (laughs) (laughs) 
well, just another debate. And and come and see. Do you know what I mean? It's um, come and see the tallest building outside of London. Because <laughs> <laughs> you write about these, the, yeah, you write about these postcard things. I mean, in yeah. London, you have got these things that have become icons, haven't you? You yeah. know, kind of um, the gherkin and the yeah. shard and. I'm not sure I've seen anything. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the gherkin or the shard, really, but I've not seen anything that kind of, apart from Beetham Tower, the kind of tallest building mm-hmm. in Manchester, this um, Ian Simpson building, that, you know, you're right, that's never going to be on a postcard. No one's mm-hmm. ever going to come and, and look at that, are they? It's just kind of there and, um, yeah, sort of standing there. What, what do you think about the aesthetics of these new high-rises? Do you like them? <laughs> Kind find of, them attractive? I, I'd say I'd say similar to what you said before when you said you didn't necessarily think it was a good or bad thing. It was you you overall you you're just encountering the scale of it. Hmm. Whether or not I'm that'd be my answer. It's kind of yeah, I'm not too sure because really they're just oblongs. They're shiny, shiny, you know, scale oblongs. So I don't know, I'm not too sure. I, I'd say that especially the new ones that we're talking about kind of, you know, we're referencing all the time, right at the end of Dean's Gate, the new, you know, the collection of, of towers. I say they're, they're fine. They seem, there's a certain sort of um, respect, I don't know, with, with there. It's not too overwhelming. Uh, but then you have the, the one that's closer, um, opposite where the old Hacienda used to be. I don't know if you know. So that one's quite garish. Mm-hmm. I know that's the, that's the word that I'd use. So it's, again, it's a, it's a patchwork. It's a mix mm-hmm. and match. Some okay. Uh, I wouldn't say any, I wouldn't describe any of them as, as beautiful. I don't know about you, Lucy. Yeah, I try to like them a bit more because I don't want to sound like too much of a Luddite, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think actually the design quality looks quite poor, particularly when you see the mock-ups of the images that, I mean, I'm not sure exactly which ones of them are permissioned and which ones are not. But when you look at the design quality that's going up, I particularly don't like um, the Ian Simpson ones. Um, they're just too, they're too sleek. Like I say, they've got, no texture um to them for me and I think and it's just what we we're talking about before I think when you look at the grain of a place the sort of industrial grain I just don't think it's very easy for that to sit against um something that's got texture and then something that's very sleek you know if you go to like cities where everything's yeah. just sort of everything's been regenerated everything's got their like glass fronted towers over it feels like you'll sort of slip off every surface do you know what I mean <laughs> and I just don't think they make a particularly nice place to be and I don't think that's what kind of Manchester is but like I said it's really interesting like the way that industrial heritage is dealt with and what that Jonathan Schofield article was talking about wasn't it was um about you know like you said it wasn't where this tower's gone up it wasn't an industrial area right Mm -hmm. this is just not true to history but what what you get I think a lot with the architects and master planners as well is the architects and master planners they'll always pay um, a bit of lip service to the industrial surround or to the heritage of the surroundings right because they have to because they have to Mm -hmm. go look this is how this fits into the context you know we've done our review we've got an intern doing our review of the um of the local history and whatever whatever but often it's little more than lip service it's like okay we're in manchester industrial city yeah put industrial in the spiel you know and i don't think often there's that much for, for, for good reasons i'm sure you know there's all kinds of um pressures and maybe people don't I don't know, the, the people who they need to impress are not too bothered about mm-hmm. that and everything happens very, very quickly. But there's not really a kind of, um, I guess it's what architecture is. It's about, at the moment, like today, it's not about a real in-depth kind of analysis of the sense of place. Mm-hmm. And I think um, planners, architects, master planners need to have a much 
better, stronger look at how things mm. fit into context. But you've got to demand that from the planning side. But I don't, I don't think there's anyone in like Manchester Council's planning team who's really looking in depth. Does this really, you know, fit in to the context of of Manchester? You know, they're really looking at, you know, is it viable? Is it, you know, does it reach these criteria? You know, I, I don't think mm-hmm. people are qualified to. I don't think they have the time to. I don't think they necessarily care that much. They go, oh yeah, industrial, yes, that's all right, and then. You know, it goes, it goes out to public consultation. Well, that's a whole other kind of <laughs> yeah, circus, another, isn't it? But podcast, so, so just yeah. maybe, maybe just to wrap up this mm-hmm. this part, then could you say briefly if you could think of one policy or one action that you'd like to see happen in this Manchester context mm. to protect these spaces or these buildings, or to make sure the development's appropriate or the development's better that we're seeing in the city centre around these heritage sites? or what is heritage, what would it be? I've got one. Yeah. I think that every developer who wants to build a building has to go on like a like half-day history tour when it's raining. Of <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be raining. Yeah. But a half-day tour of the local history yeah. and actually pay attention. I only say that because I remember when we walked around um, the old Mayfield site, which is um, an old rail depot opposite... Piccadilly Station that they're turning into this big development park and mixed use buildings and things. And I remember um, Jonathan Schofield, same guy who wrote the article. He was saying that the developer, you and I, who um, you know, not saying they do everything right, but they, and and we'll see how the actual development turns out. But he says the first time that the head, I think the director of this development company, came up and he said, "I want you to take me on a two-hour walk from," and he's a uh, historical guide right probably the mm-hmm. you know the most knowledgeable one of the most knowledgeable people about the history of Manchester in in the town he said I want you to take me from Victoria Station to Mayfield and I want you to tell me about the history on the way and I doubt that happens very often and that's you, because it was a big development but I feel like if I every developer architect yeah. team developer team were to really do that yeah. just make them do that put it in the contracts that's what I do okay Danny any- walk sounds good um, I'd say read a fantastic um, piece of writing by Gillian Rose called A Sense of Place. Mm. And, I, I, you know, mm. in terms of that's really good about um, getting in touch with your sensory experience within a place. Mm. Um, that's something quite um, specific. Uh, and then also, obviously, from a from a film background, but, you know, you know, get a real... There's archive footage that you can pour into. There's, I'm sure that people do this, but, you know, see what places used to really look like as far back as you can... They've been properly recorded mm-hmm. um, and see what that kind of story... Probably echoing you, but seeing what that story of the this area that you're about to build in, mm-hmm. um, what that is and how you might properly fit in and be part of that. Yeah. I think I would like to see maybe some just more identification through public consultation of um, of the sites that we do want to protect and then when it's identified to come up with a good robust maybe design framework around those sites that can be used and will be enforced by planners so whether it be around the John Ryland so you do protect certain views or protect certain spaces or you know around the cathedral or even maybe for whole areas that maybe individually, there's some Eamon Caniff talked about, he said actually sometimes it's not an individual building that's heritage, that prize good heritage, it's the the cityscape, the townscape that together creates mm-hmm. it. And then sometimes that's hard to protect because you can slowly knock away and go, well, that building's not so great, that building's not so like not the most important. But then you've lost the cityscape. 
So yeah, maybe just maybe more thinking about it, but I would maybe to identify these spots really clearly from yeah. early on. Can I have another? Can I have an extra bonus? You, you one? can have the bonus. Extra the bonus, bonus point. I'm going to nick from the same <laughs> Guardian architectural critic whose name we can't remember. Um, remember, he was talking what he was talking about when he was talking specifically about high rise. Um, well, he was talking about many things, but part of it he was talking about the high rise buildings that are planned to go up in Manchester. And what he said was the problem is once these things are permissioned. Um, you, very few people actually look at the plans and look at how they cumulatively impact the city. So um, what he was met, was talking about, and it's something I keep meaning to look into more, he said in Switzerland there's some kind of law where every developer, before they get permission for a high-rise building, they have to build just the outside frame of the building and yeah. put it up. Um, I don't know, very kind of rudimentary structure. It was almost wooden, wasn't it? I think it's all Yeah, I mean, really... if there was a name for it as well, something bow, you know, yeah. I'd, I'd have to, um, mm-hmm. I should do have a little look into what it's, what the story is, but um, you have to put that in so people can really see what that will look like as a kind of bulk on the skyline. Mm. And it's only then that you have, I, I believe, the public consultation and people say what they think about it. Because otherwise, you have very little sense of how these cumulatively impact the landscape. And by the time you do, it's too late and people start complaining. And probably like this building as well mm-hmm. on Deansgate, that people obviously then get really angry because they see it going up and they think, oh, goodness. Mm-hmm. When actually, there's very, it's very difficult to get an idea of what that's going to look like. And, and there are ways that um, kind of um, planners, planning is starting to do that in a slightly more high-tech way in terms of simulating, like visual simulation, visualization. Yeah. So that, and well, I think do. that will become a bigger thing in planning, yeah. so that you're able to see more than you can on a sort of street plan what something's going to look like. Well, I think VR is coming into planning, but right. maybe that's an entire, that's a different, that's a different episode. Yeah, I, but I think some it companies will. Yeah, are experimenting right. with that for public participation, where you put on put on the goggles and yeah. you can go through a new a new space, a new streetscape. Yeah, and I think it'll be massive. Yeah. yeah, I think it will. Yeah. Right. Let's move on to Lucy's story or idea. What have you brought today? Right, well, um, political hot potato slightly. Um, but I thought, I've been doing a lot of work recently on Greenbelt. And um, this is something that provokes uh, strong emotions, particularly in Manchester, because um, you might know that the, the, the Greater Manchester Spatial Plan, the main thing, the, the kind of main ang- uh, spanner in the works with that one that is causing the redrafting of the whole plan and this big delay to the plan is all about building on the green belt but it's certainly not a story that's um uh isolated to manchester only um this is obviously a big kind of um, political issue across the country so the issue being that um uh given projections of housing need um there are parts of the green belt being released so basically what um, local authorities are having to do is identify where you know what their population projections are, how they're going to build um, the housing to um, fulfil those needs, and then identifying as many um, plots and sites as they can, either on brownfield sites or other greenfield sites that are outside that are not in the green belts, usually inside the green belt. But then beyond that, if they have an overflow need of housing, they're having to identify sites on the green belt, which is where all the problems arise because we have a very, very strong sort of um, connection and affection for the green belt. Um, and, you know, then what happens is a local authority has to do a green belt review and identify the parts that are able to be released. So the parts that aren't contributing too much to the green belt. And then come, there's a, been a lot of protests last year. You know, there's big parts of, I think, Bolton and Stockport and Wigan, where the Greenbelt has been identified by the spatial plan in Manchester for being released for housing. 
and it does not go down well you know for, for good for good reasons in some places but um what you realize the more you learn about the green belt is that and it and it feeds into this issue around public consultation is there's a really um big gap in understanding about what the green belt purposes are so without kind of getting too technical you know the green belt it was first was designated mostly in the 1950s that there was the 1930s London Green London Metropolitan Green Belt was introduced, but mostly across the country in the it was in the 1950s. And the purpose, the overall purpose of the Green Belt is just to put sort of a green ring around cities to, to prevent urban sprawl and to main, and to stop cities sort of growing into each other and sort of um, and just getting the merging of cities. Um, so what you'll see is actually a green ring around cities. There's a really strong perception that the Green Belt is um, it's open countryside and, and and is kind of green infrastructure and is places that we walk our dogs. And actually, um, I think the green belt covers about, um, I can tell you in a minute <laughs> what the green, the green belt covers about 13% of England's land area, which actually, you know, it's, it's a lot smaller than people think. And well, only one about three, 13, 13, one, yeah. three, yeah, okay. 13%. And only about 4% of that is, open land that you can actually access to walk your dog or which is often the parts of that people yeah. are you know okay. wondering about protecting the vast majority of it, i think between 60 or 70 percent is, is agricultural land often like quite intensively um intensively farmed agricultural land which doesn't actually have that much mm. net environmental benefit but again that's another <laughs> kind of okay. agricultural yeah. issue to deal with but you know what we need to really look at what we're protecting so what you get with the green belt is you get these two positions You've got the um, the people kind of led by the campaign uh, campaign to protect rural England, which sees the green belt as this kind of open land, uh, really good for the environment, incredibly important to protect. And you've got this other um, sort of uh, position, which is led by people like the Adam Smith Institute, which calls it a green noose, which comes with all these other problems. So what happens when you put a, a you when you com- basically ban development in a ring of land around a city is that you just yeah you create a compact city but the house prices just kind of absolutely fly up so you get that um in manchester to a certain extent but obviously in london to an enormous extent Mm -hmm. so affordability takes a massive hit so you really need to address the issue of affordability um and actually i think you know to kind of sum up the main point is that we really need to find a position that is between that so people basically know what they're protesting against i think there's really important to keep areas of open land around housing so to really densify the housing in what in the housing areas and the urban areas and then keep these open spaces outside but i think campaigning to protect the green belt is not the best flag to be waving with that because there are different policies to protect you might have one piece of land on the outskirts of a city which is green belt it's also protected as a nature reserve usually under European legislation, but that I think will stay in place um, in UK legislation. Um, it might also protect it as open land because um, every like local plan has to um, keep a certain amount of land for protected for, I don't know, sports and, and parks and this kind of thing. It might be protected as a registered park. But what people do is they, they, they see a piece of land and they say, well, we need to protect this because it's green belt. And that's not actually what the green belt is. There might be lots of really good reasons to protect that land. There's green infrastructure, as um, John will know a lot about yeah. in terms of green infrastructure. But all green belt is not green infrastructure. Most of it's not publicly accessible. Sometimes it's in very uh, poor condition, which is not always an excuse for 
building on it, for example, but it might be in certain cases. Yeah. Well, the, and it's the shout out back to Ian Mel, who was on the second episode. Right. He has a book, um, Greenbelt's Past, Present and Future, in which right. he does talk about these things. Um, so if, you, if you'd like to read even more about <laughs> that, that's the way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think it really feeds into this idea about public consultation, it being such a brilliant thing that um, the way our cities are made uh, is opened up to a greater number of people to kind of give their opinion on it mm-hmm. but then where do we find that balance between experts and the public um in in lots of different ways you know it's i think the green belt comes into that quite a lot um because essentially it's used quite politically so the reason that the spatial plan i mean there was a relatively high percentage i'm trying to think what the what percentage was manchester greater manchester green belt they wanted to release um but it was something like 12%, I think, um, but I'd have to check up on that. Um, so it's a relatively high percent, but still it's not, and that's just the parts that they were kind of looking at to fulfill mm-hmm. their housing need. But there's also a sense where people really need to sort of, with public consultations, they really need to see where they're willing to give in a little bit. So you can't, for instance, oppose densification in urban areas and oppose gr- <laughs> building on the green belt. You know, mm-hmm. that just doesn't work if we've got a growing population mm-hmm. you know so you can't and you can't ha- you know support massive economic growth in manchester without you know understanding that the land for that i can you know fine oppose growth and oppose and oppose building on the green belt but you kind of the problem with consultation is you know people will generally um only see one side of the story yeah yeah so that's but, really interesting I, i've found sort of like a parallel to the to the English green belt, so I thought it was quite interesting. Mm. In in, in Portland, in in the Netherlands, oh, okay. that, um, they have it's all, it's the same concept in terms of right. it was developed in the 1950s. It was people worried about cities just joining together, and they wanted to maintain some open space between them. But it's it's the opposite in that it's with, it's the green heart. So mm. within the ring cities of Amsterdam, Leiden, The Hague, Rotterdam, they want to maintain this green heart. But similarly, in the last 20 years, there's been a lot of debate about it because some people want to release the land because there's housing pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read this article that was kind of people arguing that it's fictional. It doesn't even exist. There's nothing that really is, <laughs> you know, the green heart, that there's a real variety. Essential <laughs> questions. <laughs> and, and they were saying, just forget about it. It's not real. <laughs> and um, But it's funny because I often, I often think, you know, about the Netherlands, there is this. There's a similarity between the English and the Dutch in some sense. And whenever I really think, what is that similarity? One thing is darts. The only two countries I think that are mad into darts, darts are yeah, the yeah. English and the Dutch. The Netherlands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, <laughs> and now I've got a second thing, which is this sort of green heart, green belt concept. Is that yeah. they both were worried about cities joining together, and they're now having this debate because there's housing pressure. Right. And I wonder whether we'll start seeing people start saying the green belt doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's imaginary. One of these existential questions. <laughs> it's like when, um, yeah. when, I don't know, Eric, Eric Swingerdow at Manchester, he'd talk about, but you know, when someone starts talking about trees and green infrastructure and saving tr- and protests to save trees and he'd be like, but what is a tree? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because a tree can serve so many purposes. This is what you, but basically, what is a tree? It gets existential. Planning occasionally gets existential, doesn't yeah. it? Well, if, if developers, you know, ever want to try, you know, when people want to release Greenbelt, maybe they should just hire philosophers who hire. <laughs> just play stupid mind games with people and deconstruct these concepts to like, everyone is like, what is a tree? Until they what get so the bored belt? that they just give in. Yeah. <laughs> 
there is there is another good parallel though that I was um, found out about recently is is Portland, which you said you'd been having like a but Portland and Oregon in the states, and the states not known for a strong planning tradition. You know, um, they are certainly not a strong kind of the planning is not a strong force in the United not States for people, generally. Anyway. <laughs> not for people. Kind of planning for other things. Yeah, they're not so great on protecting Greenland. But in Portland, they do it quite differently, and in the whole state of Oregon, I believe. But what they call it, and I'm no expert on their green belt, but essentially works like a green belt. I'm not sure exactly when they introduced it, but it's, um, they call it an urban growth boundary, or a UGB. And it, what I found quite interesting about this, and, and they do release parts of it. They have a review of, um, of their urban growth boundary every few years. They look at the pressure on housing, where they're going to build housing, and they review it, and they might release parts of it um, every few years. And of course, it does bring up, I think, its own controversies. But what I found quite interesting about it is they call it something very unemotive, like the urban growth boundary, which is what it is. Essentially, the green belt is, we call it the green belt, which get, becomes quite emotional because it's about green and I don't know, this whole very kind of sort of British kind of um, connection to this rural idyll and all this, the same yeah. problem that gets in the way of sort of on um, onshore wind farms and all this kind of yeah. thing. It's this very specifically British thing. They also call it the green belt. And so when you call it the green belt, it's not really always particularly green. Whereas mm. they call it, I find it quite interesting, that in Portland they call it the urban growth boundary, urban which growth is much boundary. more, it's a much better description of what its purpose is yeah. actually. And so I'm sure people get quite emotional about the urban growth boundary as well in Portland. I've not been or talked to people in Portland. But I do find the naming of it quite interesting and how um, there's quite a different attitude. It's a much more pragmatic attitude towards the urban growth boundary and what it's there for. Yeah. Um, whereas calling it the green belt or the green heart is possibly even more emotive yeah. and why it's getting into existential debates about whether the, whether somewhere exists. Do you have a heart? <laughs> do you have a heart? Does the Netherlands have a heart? Not being from like a planning or even design background, don't yeah. you, necessarily. Have you heard of the green belt before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a term that um, laymen such as myself, yeah. uh, <laughs> citizens, you, you're aware of it. But I, I would echo what was discussed before: is that you're not really. I I see it as. Uh, the green bits outside of the city centre that um, you don't know what to do when you're there. Um, <laughs> I would assume that it would be, you know, so that was interesting for me to, you know, you do assume that it's places where people might go and uh, walk their dogs. And I was reminded of a film that I made in 2014 and it was focused on Salford Precinct. It was my dad and a, a friend of his who, who grew up near there. Um, and at the end I said, you know, what, what would you like to to see you know and he said well I wonder if they're gonna just knock it all down the precinct I wonder if they'll knock it all down and start again and he said but I would like to see more green belt areas and that was a phrase that he used as oh, part yeah. of it mm-hmm. now I remember at the time thinking but you know you can't put a green belt area in Sulphur precinct dad and I didn't say anything and dad if you are listening you know sorry for using it. Um, but I think that's a really good example of someone re- knowing that they might want green, more green spaces and I think what he was talking about was parks and spaces yeah. where yeah. to use um, but I think there is a, a general misconception of I'm not really sure well I've got a lot better idea now after the discussion but you know you're not really sure what it is what it's there for and you just think well yeah protect green spaces and we're meant to be green yeah. Yeah. This urban growth boundary, then I'm, I'm all of a sudden I'm thinking about it in actually different yeah. terminology in a different way. I approach it in a different, um, in a different fashion. Um, is, yeah. So, yeah, so I don't want to, I don't want to sound too negative about public consultation either, because I think it's just a question of respecting people's mm-hmm. opinions and, and the views they put for, forward, but somehow finding a better language for that to happen. I mean, yeah, it is. It's absolutely. a British thing, isn't it? It was very. 
generally kind of adversarial culture in general and it's this very consultation becomes very adversarial right because we're not used to really doing much consultation and collective decision making in the UK we're very and the US actually so it'd be interesting to see in Portland but we have this very adversarial culture where it's you know kind of my opinion set against your opinion maybe we'll go to court (laughs) and we'll sort things out whereas you know this is what's happening is we're bringing in these public consultations I do they're incredibly combative you know and it's very much people putting their stake in the ground and we need to somehow find just more generally I think a language that a better language for talking about these things and, mm. and you know everyone's not gonna you know planning is not you know the most exciting area of policy always you know um it's Speak you know yourself, as much as I yeah. try <laughs> as much as I try I'm often the kind of the planner among designers and design is like yeah okay we get this yeah design nice and planning is you know difficult to make it a bit sexier but people aren't going to go and look into planning documents and planning theory and look into the housing projection mm. figures and you, you're never going to make it that sexy people need i guess it's just a case of better communicating what we're doing and there are attempts to do it right and i think yeah things like vr but also the way they're sort of um these plans often the the consultation plans they are trying to make them a bit more visual a bit more engaging but they're quite long documents with often dull stuff about the conservation area boundaries and this kind of thing that people realistically are not going to plow through i'm not going to do this for sectors I don't work in either but planning is an interesting one is that it really affects you know the daily kind of our daily routines and it's stuff we walk past every day so we do get quite emotive about it but we can't be expected to look through a 40 page document and have something really um yeah that's what I think is a big thing we just wrap up this before going on to the final story Mm. is that of what we almost said in, in, in what we're talking about with your, your, your point and heritage, Danny, is that how to engage with the public better because people aren't going to go through these long documents. But actually, mm. if you could do VR and you can get someone to walk through a new space or a new plan, or even, you know, you could take someone out into the green belt who perhaps, you know, showed them areas where you can go, look, this space is not ecologically valuable. It's not a place that people want to go and spend time. Maybe it's not even accessible what about redeveloping this for to meet the housing need and also make great green space, accessible green spaces like your dad wanted perhaps for Sulphur Precinct, Danny? Because mm-hmm. I think, yeah, big mm. problem is just the language that's used by it. People don't really know what it means to say green yeah. belt because your dad used it in that context, but it's a completely valid point. But people use that all the time to mean green belt, like accessible green space. But mm-hmm. yeah. uh, Just final point, you know, in terms of engagement, a lot of time it can just... It could be more than just a, a random tweet or website page that says consultation at this date, at this time. I know that there's many ideas that we could put forward, but a lot of the time you just have to go and actively look for when consultations are happening. I think councils mm. can do a lot more to, to actually send out information. And community infrastructure as well. So, mm. you know, a lot of this... Um you know, the community spaces that are set up, maybe a lot of that needs to really build the connection to the physical landscape that those community um, places set up. So, you know, a lot of these kind of communities who are taking over buildings and stuff, maybe there's a role Mm. for them to sort of get people engaged in sort of connecting to the place that they live in and, you know, through the history, you know, through history and Mm. through what it could be in the future and this kind of thing. But in a kind of positive way as well, because, um, you know, make it short, but that, there's a lot of talk as well about positive planning. There's, it's all through the policy document, positive planning, positive approach to planning, you know, which essentially, to be honest, in a lot of these planning documents mean just get stuff built, don't ask too many questions. But I think 
there's we need to really interpret this idea of positive planning of like what could the place you're living in be like you know because most people's engagement in planning is what you know what I always say is the reason people dislike planners is because usually the only time they've encountered one is when they've told them they can't build their conservatory to a certain height Mm -hmm. or something it's always a very negative you know and they think that's what planners do actually is they like turn down conservatory you know permission applications when actually there's a much more positive role of planning it's like what do you want the street you walk down to get to work to look like you know what would you like to see on your street and how can we try and make that happen that's what a positive approach to planning should be not this develop, you know, Gary never, Gary never wants to build Gary something, never. let him build it. You know, try not to be too harsh to Gary Neville, but a, de- a really genuinely positive approach to planning, not like, again, this kind of lip service that's yeah. paid to that, yeah. So perhaps going on to my final fact now, it kind of links to this quite nicely. Hopefully this is a positive approach to the right. positive approach to planning and design, some good changes that can happen. So I want to talk about the changes that happened in Waltham Forest, in London, what was called the Mini Holland Scheme, now called Livable Neighbourhoods. So this started around the early, I think, 2011, 2012. And the whole aim of this project was to redesign the streets in, in, at a neighbourhood scale, um, to not allow through traffic in certain areas, to maybe change some of the pedestrian infrastructure, things like continuous footways, small pocket parks and public spaces, as well as um, improve the cycling infrastructure, all with the aim of improving active travel, so walking and cycling. So more trips by foot, more trips by bike. And what I really want to talk about is that it's been really successful. So the first year that it was properly implemented, um, Rachel Aldred, Dr. Rachel Aldred, I think she's from Westminster University, um, had looked at people's travel movements beforehand and after and found that there was a a 13% rise in walking and a 18% rise in cycling, all within the first year, which um, she can attribute to the changes in the streetscape. Um, there was a lot of, um, well, there was a vocal minority that protested against it, but it seems that the majority of people there are really happy with the changes that happen. It's safer for children to get around. It's safer for everyone to get around, particularly children around um, schools and things like that. And um, there was another bit of research um, that quantified that um, children who were born um, since 2013, apparently they can um, expect it to have an extra, I think, what was it? Let me look particularly the figure, an extra six weeks at the moment of life. I don't know exactly how they got these <laughs> figures, but it's from King's College London, so it's got to be respectable. <laughs> um, so yeah, it just seems to have a real, had a real positive impact already within the first year, and it's something they want to roll out across London, and hopefully we'll be seeing soon in Greater Manchester, Salford yeah. Council, Odsall. we're going to do this in Odsall. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just wondered what, what you thought about that, because there was this big protest um, well, I mean, big for a neighbourhood level. Yeah. Um, but it seems to have been really positive. They've had these positive impacts. And it's about making streets safer. It's about kind of trying to reduce the dominance of, of cars at that neighbourhood level. Yeah. Is it something you'd like to see where you guys live? Or do- uh, Yeah, for me, I was, I was really interested in that. And um, a lot of the time, I, I think it's, it's interesting and, and really positive in terms of where I noticed within the, that particular article, there was some areas that they gave a heavy dose of mini Holland treatment and some other areas there was a, a lower dose. So I think the, there's three examples. So it was Waltham Forest, Kingston, and then one other, they got heavy doses and that's where a lot of this was going. And actually I think, you know, more, um, I don't know if intervention is the correct word, but you know, something where, you know, you, you're having heavy dose. 
Um, and I think sometimes it's like ripping the plaster off and it, it can feel a little bit frustrating. I'm, I don't drive, like I've never done a driving lesson in my entire life. So, you know, I depend on public transport on my own two feet to get around. Um, so it's quite nice when people are actually making these changes that, you know, I can look at that and go, I would love a place like that or a policy like that to be implemented in my neighbourhood where I live. Um, and I also noticed that it was connected to, obviously in central London, you had the cycle superhighways. Was that the, yeah. Still, uh, still ongoing. Still ongoing. And, but this was kind of like a, a parallel measure for those, those areas that mm-hmm. are just outside of kind of what you'd term, you know, Kingston is a really great, you know, quite a pedestrianised uh, town centre, um, Kingston upon Thames and things like that. So it's quite nice to have that because um, from being based in, in London sometimes, you know, the traffic to get around that pedestrianised area was, you know, was, um, I think more um, options of being able to get around that place is definitely uh, a good thing. And a kick up the backside uh, never hurt anybody sometimes. Yeah. That would be my response, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I think the idea they call it mini, the Mini Holland scheme is quite interesting, right? Because I think the most exciting thing about it is that um, it's a precedent within the UK that this kind of thing appears to be working. Because actually, you know, I mean, this is kind of big bu- big bugbear of both mine and yours, John, I think, is that often when you implement things or you, when you suggest implementing things that happen in perhaps in European cities, there's a bit of, oh, but, you know, this isn't Copenhagen or this mm-hmm. isn't. And so what's, I think, really promising is that in Walthamstow, it's a really, I mean, I, I, I only know Walthamstow a little bit, but it's quite a mixed neighbourhood. It's a very heavily mm-hmm. gentrifying neighbourhood, yeah. right? But it's... Um, you know, from all by all accounts from uh, the news that's coming out of Walthamstow is that it's not um, a purely sort of white middle class thing where people are cycling around and this kind mm. of thing. So it's quite it's quite encouraging that somewhere like London, this is happening, and they've shown that okay, it's not because like Dutch people are born riding bikes. You know, it's because they've actually <laughs> had the infrastructure since the nineteen sixties and the nineteen seventies. Um, that has helped people to cycle, right? I mean, there will be a, you know, it's interesting that you say in that the, the the kind of quite large scale um, cycle infrastructure rollout that's being planned for Greater Manchester, supposedly, um, does include like a provision for these filtered neighbourhoods, right? Which are sort, as I understand, a sort of a similar, based on a similar premise, you know, kind of really restricting tra- traffic, pedestrian first, different mm. sort of hierarchy of kind of travellers. But obviously, I'm sure that people in Oddsall and elsewhere, there'll be the same kickback. I don't know whether mm. they'll, you know, um, parade a coffin down the street or whatever they did in <laughs> Walthamstow, this kind of vocal minority. Yeah. But there will be kickbacks to that because it will mean, it will sort of force a change in behaviour, which is not something that we're used to having done, mm. really, um, particularly when it comes around car driving you know everyone you know a lot of the thing when you talk about the need to reduce the amount of car traffic in greater manchester and the absolute kind of balls up that was the um the attempt to get a congestion charge in greater manchester you know we don't like these things being forced on Mm. people in manchester don't like these things being forced on them and elsewhere as well so they all say well give us all of our fantastic public transport infrastructure and then start talking about reducing cars and that that transitional phase when you put in these sort of schemes is what needs a lot more, a lot more thought in terms of the funding and how you're able to, cause you know, things like a congestion charge, for example, is another way of forcing behavior change. Right. But mm. where the, the idea of the congestion charge that it will provide funding for public transport, but then you need to provide the public transport, you know, you need to do something financially say we you're able to get the public transport first and then get the trust of people that they'll say, yes, congestion charge, 
but we trust that you're going to give us public transport infrastructure, which clearly is a big, um, is where the congestion charge fell down. But similar to this kind of mini Holland scheme, it is forcing people to kind of rethink their travel behaviour. But in London, you do have an extraordinarily good network of well-funded yeah. public transport infrastructure, which is a big difference. That's why yeah. looking at the context in Greater Manchester, yeah. it is, yeah. that's a big thing for me to take into account when I'm thinking about it now, is that, you know, already in, in Waltham Forest, you can walk to a tube station within mm. like, well, depending on where you are, saying like 15, 20 minutes. But the tube is such a reliable way of getting around that people tend to be more willing to walk for longer when they have that reliability. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Greater Manchester, we've got a very slow tram and buses, which Ooh. buses aren't always bad, but <laughs> they they can never be 100% as consistent or never yeah. come, not 100% as consistent. They can never be as consistent as an underground system or a mm-hmm. tram system that is a bit more effective or a train mm-hmm. or trains. Or just a bus system that runs on time occasionally. Yeah, so I don't know because... Yeah. But the thing is, what... If it could happen in central neighbourhoods in, in, in Manchester within the city centre, I think that would be really effective because it has a lot of the things that people will already walk for. A bit more density, a bit more mix of uses. It's just that the actual environment on the street is often very poor. It's often cars parked everywhere, big roads that are a bit horrible to cross. Um, <laughs> and so, <cuts>. yeah. <laughs> Um, I think I think as well a lot of the a lot of things that we're saying uh, here referencing with Manchester be applicable to most of the other major cities of of England and and yeah. Scotland. You'll yeah. think about Glasgow as well. They have a good subway system there, but it's a circle like you know it doesn't extend in the same uh, anywhere near the same sort of intrinsic nature as London Ground, Liverpool, Leeds, Newcastle. All probably have similar issues that we experience not being the capital city and and not having that reliable underground network. Um, yeah, London. London's a, it's a special case, isn't it? You know, as soon as I was saying, all oh, people go, this isn't, this isn't <laughs> yeah. Copenhagen, is it? But yeah. I can imagine in Manchester, you know, it would be well, this isn't London, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. which because it is, it is quite different. You know, Bristol again, where I'm based, all the same problems as Manchester, potentially worse public transport. I think it is worse public transport provision than Manchester actually, mm. which is quite shocking. And I think that goes for probably most of these kind of core cities outside of London is. Mm is, um, you know, you need a very different approach and a different, it's about timing, isn't it, somehow? You know, saying, like, where do you try, try out these things and create a Manchester precedent? Yeah, maybe starting in Odd is probably a relatively good idea because it's a place where there's a lot of, like, quite dense um, regeneration and building going on. It's relatively yeah. close to the city centre, you know, and then you kind of sort of prove the concept and, and move elsewhere because you need to persuade people that it works. And again, it's this idea of a positive vision. If you see a really well done filtered neighbourhood, and, th- and you do, if you go to these places where this works nicely, yeah, you think, it's Goodness. really nice walking around Waltham Forest now. Honestly, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, yeah. Well, I think that we shall leave it there for the Christmas New Year episode. And I think this is this is the final episode of this first series of Urban Design Room. So. Thank you for anyone that's listened to any of the episodes. It's been really fun to make, me and Danny making this. And we're hoping to do a second series um, in the new year at some point. Hopefully Lucy will come back for an episode or two. That'd be very nice. Or maybe we could go on the road. Yeah, we'll take it to Bristol. Take it to Bristol. Bristol. Look at the public transport in Bristol. (laughs) (laughs) There's a bus protest. We could go and... uh, Oh, we could be live on the the scene of the bus protest. Public consultations. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so Happy New Year to anyone that's listening. Um, And yes, we shall leave it there. And this has been the first series of Urban Design Room. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having us.